Radio MD. RadioMD.com. The world's preeminent talk radio portal. All about your health. And now here's Melanie Cole, MS, host of Staying Well. As a woman, we want to see our gynecologist regularly, have our pap smear, have our checkups, because we worry about the woman cancers. I'm saying that with quotes, the uterine, ovarian, and cervical cancers. We need to know what symptoms may or may not arise, and some of these are sort of silent cancers. We're talking today with Dr. Kevin Holcomb. He's the director of the Division of Gynecological Oncology at New York Presbyterian Hospital, as well as an associate professor of clinical obstetrics and gynecology at the Weill Medical College of Cornell University. Welcome to the show, Dr. Holcomb. So let's start with uterine cancer, the most common. How do we know? Is that involving our pap smear? What do you want us to know about uterine cancer? I guess the, uh, well, good morning, first of all, and thank you for the invite. Um, I guess the most important thing to know about uterine cancer would be the symptoms that are associated with it. As, as you mentioned, um, uterine cancer is the most common GYN cancer in this country. And uh, many women who develop uterine cancer will have their first sign being abnormal vaginal bleeding, particularly in women who have already gone through menopause. And some women may wonder, well, how do I know when I'm officially postmenopausal? And if you haven't had a period for 12 consecutive months, you are by definition in menopause. Any bleeding that happens after that, even if it's just mild staining or a pink vaginal discharge, that should, that, that should get you to your doctor's office for a evaluation. Um, the good news is that the majority of women with this symptom don't have cancer. Out of postmenopausal bleeders, a minority of them have cancer. The majority are caused by benign causes, but it's, it's, that's the time to get in and get evaluated. Well, and that's so confusing for women, as you say, Dr. Holcomb, because as someone who's in Perry right now, I know that it is quite boy, it's, it, you don't know what's going on. You know, sure. sometimes you get one, sometimes you don't. And then if there's a little bleeding in between, and as women, we worry, you know, you see a little blood, a little spotting, you're like, yikes, what is that? So this is really good advice. And if you haven't had your period for 12 months, you can assume that you are in menopause and then any spotting would send us to the doctor. What about ovarian cancer? There are celebrities that have come out with this telling us that it's the silent cancer. What do we want yeah. to know about ovarian? You know, I tell you, for years uh, we've been taught in medical school that same thing, that ovarian cancer is this silent cancer, a silent killer. And what we're trying to really get out now is that we were wrong in saying that. I think what you can say about ovarian cancer is that its presenting symptoms are often very nonspecific and they're vague. And, and they're not the type of symptoms that would point most women to a gynecologic cause. For example... Um, one of the most common symptoms of ovarian cancer is just abdominal swelling. A woman whose belt is getting tight, her abdomen is getting larger, but she's not gaining weight anywhere else. And that's usually due to an accumulation of fluid, what we call ascites, in her abdomen. And some of the other symptoms are very nonspecific and vague as well. There are things like crampy abdominal pain, uh, nausea and vomiting, filling up faster that you can't eat as much as you used to be able to eat. And patients can have quite advanced disease with some of these nonspecific and vague complaints, but it's not usually something that happens in isolation. Usually women are having a constellation of these symptoms. So at the same time that they're having some new nausea and vomiting, they're noticing that their abdomen is getting larger. At the same time that's happening, 
they're having changes in their bowel habits. And at that same time, they're also having u- new urinary incontinence or urinary frequency. So it tends to be a lot of things that people would not necessarily put together. Um, and unfortunately, because of that, many women end up going down a road of uh, gastrointestinal workups that are pretty extensive um, before someone gets a pelvic sonogram or does any blood work to see that they have ovarian cancer. So I'm, I would like to see people not call it a silent disease because it's not, but it doesn't scream at you, it whispers. And so you have to be really in tune with these vague uh, symptoms. And we don't want to turn women into hypochondriacs. But if you're having a constellation of these new uh, symptoms, that is something to mention um, to your physician. And if your physician brings up everything but ovarian cancer, they say that sounds like irritable bowel syndrome, that maybe you have uh, diverticulitis, maybe it's an appendectomy, appendicitis, um, then you need to mention it to your doctor. Well, what about ovarian cancer? Because the test that we would order, something as simple as a pelvic sonogram with no radiation exposure and an inexpensive test, could make a huge difference in a woman's outcome. That's great advice, Dr. Holcomb, because women do get bloated. We do get all of these things that you've mentioned, but when they all kind of come together and they are whispering at us, that's the time to go to your gynecologist and make the suggestion, and then maybe they can do this simple you know, examination, the sonogram, give us a pelvic, and find out if that's going on. And as you say, we don't want to turn into hypochondriacs, but these things are very scary. Now, what about cervical cancer? Are we getting checked in our regular yearly exams for cervical cancer? And what are the symptoms of that one? You you are actually, a lot of things that we recommend women to come in annually for, for a uh, annual gynecologic exam, have not necessarily been proven to promote health. Um, But Cervical cancer screening is one of those things that every study that has looked at an area before and after you've instituted a cervical cancer screening program shows that the rate of death and the rate of new cases of cervical cancer starts to go down significantly, and that's because of cervical cancer screening. Now, in this country, um, I'll, I'll give a plug for my hospital, New York Presbyterian Cornell Medical Center. This is where Papa Nicolau published his, his best-known work in cervical cancer screening. There's a bust of him as you walk in through the medical school. And that, at that time, just taking a smear from the cervix and putting those cells onto a slide for a cytologist to look at um, was really revolutionary because what he did was to show that before there are symptoms, before there's even a lesion you can see with your eye, their cells are already turning abnormal and that you can grade the level of abnormality just by how different the cells look. On top of that, we've identified what is the exact cause of cervical cancer. And now we know cervical cancer is caused by an infectious disease. It's a, it's a viral infection it's called human papillomavirus. And that viral infection, which is extremely common, it's estimated 80% uh, of Americans have a HPV infection at some point in their life. This is men and women. Um, But some people keep that infection. They don't get rid of it. And if you have a persistent infection of a specifically high-risk type of HPV, those are the people who are at risk for getting cervical cancer. So we've got it worked out pretty well by knowing what causes the disease, um, knowing how to screen for it. Um, But we're still not seeing further benefit 
from the screening uh, protocols. A lot of the early gains that we saw, these rapid declines in death rates, uh, they've leveled off in the last decade or so. And I think what we're seeing is sort of the, the, the sort of maximal potential of pap smears being met. And that's where I think where uh, viral screening for HPV is being added in to improve the performance of screening. So my message Dr. to Holcomb. patients out yes. No, no, go on. Your message to patients are? My message to patients would be that you need to be aware of how often you should be getting a pap smear and when you should start. Um, it's now recommended at 21 years of age, everyone should be getting an annual pap smear. But there are times when you can get less than annual pap smears. For women who are over 30 and they don't have high-risk HPV, you can spread those screenings out to every three or five years. That doesn't mean you don't go to your gynecologist, but it just means you don't need cervical cancer screening because you're in a low-risk group. And then as a woman gets into her elder years, let's say you're 65 years of age and you haven't had a recent abnormal pap, it's safe to stop screening under certain instances. Um, And so I think everyone needs to be aware where they are in their continuum, how often they should be getting pap smears, I wish I could say if you were compliant, you'll never get cervical cancer, but I can tell you if you're compliant with cervical cancer screening, the chances of you getting a cervical cancer are exceedingly, exceedingly low. Thank you so much. Great information. This is Melanie Cole. You're listening to Radio MD. Stay well. 